0: Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Lee Radford Radford. on ABC Radio Adelaide.
1: Terrific to have your company this Saturday morning and what a wonderful weekend of gardening weather we have as Claire Campbell was just telling us in the news. Uh, Really very pleasant conditions, at least in the southern part of the state. Of course, if you get up into the far north, it is very hot at the moment. But uh, certainly for the vast majority of the South Australian population, uh, very nice weather at the moment this weekend. And uh, particularly if you're in metropolitan Adelaide and uh, not too far afield, Pretty much ideal, I would suggest. Good morning to you again, John Lamb, and uh, we've got lots of calls to get through this morning. Um, now, just before we go back to taking some of those calls, and look, we do give priority to uh, the callers on this program because it is Talk about Gardening, but we get lots of texts as well, and I will get to some of those texts uh, as the program progresses but do give priority to the callers. John, you might be interested uh, in this text. It says, hello, fellas, have been in the Diggers Club for about 20 years. Very informative. And always listen to John Lamb on Saturday morning, says Dave at Mount Pleasant. So I think that's a comment related to your comments earlier, John, about the, uh, the future of garden clubs in South Australia.
2: Garden clubs are tremendously important. In terms of sharing information, sharing plants, and uh, there's concern that they could be in trouble. And that concern it comes from garden historian Trevor Nottle. And we'll talk to Trevor about. What's happening, what's facing the garden clubs at the moment with COVID and, the, and your renewed interest in in, uh, in gardening? Uh, the garden clubs should be overrun with members and it's not happening. We'll take a look at why very shortly and then later in the program we might take a look at that fruit harvest that's coming in at the moment and who's going to eat the fruit, you or the birds?
1: <laughs> well, we've got Trevor up now, John, just before we go to introduce Trevor this morning. I thought I'd just ask you to clear up a couple of things because um, you, you talk a lot about seeds seaweed products on this program and there are a couple of texts about it this morning. One basically saying seaweed is the universal good tonic, good for plants, good for cows, good for us, says Frosty. But then another texter says this and uh, and I'd really like you to to correct this because I don't think it's right. Um, The texter says your gardening guru should clarify that using seaweed is a catastrophe for the garden. The salt kills everything. That's not right, (laughs) is it,
2: John? No, if you uh, got seaweed off the beach... And you use that, not that you're allowed to take seaweed off the beach anyway, but you'd find that there is uh, plenty of salt on that kind of seaweed, and it's probably seagrass, not seaweed, and uh, that contains salt. Um, with the materials we're talking about, the seaweed products, and there are two types there's a dry one, uh, which is uh, sea sole, and the uh, sorry, eco seaweed, and then the liquid one, which is sea salt, and they are based on kelp, on kelp. Uh, Two different types of kelps and they are put into a great big uh, cooking machine and and they uh, are tremendous products. They've been used widely uh, in agriculture and in horticulture and in gardening or probably uh, 30 or 40 years. And the more we learn about them, the more effective they are. There is confusion, though, in the fact that uh, some companies, th- th- they use their company brand to, to put it on different products, and it causes confusion. And so you'll get Seasol, and everybody th- talks about Seasol, and they assume that they're talking about seaweed. And if you get Seasol seaweed product, it is. It's just seaweed material or the cult material material. Um, and that's all it, it contains. Whereas you can also buy sea sole power feed. Now, power feed does not contain seaweed. That's why you need the two products: seaweed, sea soil, and you need power feed. Power feed is made out of composts and fish materials. And there are other people's versions of it apart from uh, the, the sea So you'll find that uh, uh, there's Charlie Carp, uh, which is based on fish. There is nitrosol, which is based on blood and bone. And then along comes neutral and puts together uh, fish and compost and uh, seaweed. And and so it's a a hamburger with a lot there. So (laughs) at this stage, it, it gets a bit confusing. And the companies don't make it easy for people to try and work out what they're doing.
1: But that does clarify things, John. And I think that's terrific. Uh, there is no salt in these products. It's not going to hurt your garden. But let's go back now, John, to uh, the topic of the day, and that's gardening clubs.
2: Yeah, Okay. garden clubs have been with us for three quarters of a century and played a major role in in encouraging people into the garden and encourage them to uh, uh, swap plants and show their plants. And uh, uh, I think that uh, a lot of people have learnt from uh, the garden clubs and they should be uh, uh, overrun with new members at the moment because of COVID. And it's not happening. And talking to a historian, guard, uh, uh, Trevor Nottle, some, uh, well, about a week or so ago, and he was saying, John, I think uh, garden clubs are, are headed for trouble. And so I thought, Tre- we need to talk to Trevor on Talkback Gardening. And here he is. Good morning to you, Trevor Nottle.
3: Good morning, John.
2: How so, are you? I'm reasonably well. I don't like being locked in my little studio when I could be in the AVC studio, but at least I've got a pleasant outlook. I'm looking out onto my courtyard. And mandevillias, I've got two climbing mandevillias, and they've got their beautiful red flowers, and beneath it there's a show of begonias and coleus and hushiras, and so there's a lot of colour out there, and I guess I wouldn't. Wouldn't mind talking to you about your garden. Uh, we might talk about Lillian shortly. But listen, garden clubs, why, are they, why is there trouble ahead for garden clubs?
3: Well, I, I, at the moment, I think that the, the trouble is that they just have, they're just old. And that the people that are running them are feeling old. And they've been doing it for a long time. And they're having difficulty renewing themselves and some of the people want to retire and get off the committee and all that sort of thing, and I look around and there's no youngsters there, and they haven't really found a way to reach them yet.
2: So why is it so? It, it attracts the older gardeners, and they have enjoyed uh, their time and, and uh, uh, friendship from a garden club, but why are not the younger generation joining up?
3: Well, there's lots of reasons. I think for a start, younger people with families are very, very busy taking kids to all sorts of things after hours and on the weekend and catching up with friends and doing that. But also a lot of people have got other hobbies that they'd rather pursue, things that Perhaps an older generation of gardeners don't think about, but heaps of people go water skiing, and riding jet skis, and all that sort of thing. That so, and garden clubs and gardening is in competition with those recreational activities. So, is it just
2: uh, keep going?
3: Oh, it's all right. No, I think people are just uh, choosing differently and somehow gardening hasn't been presented to them as an attractive alternative. So there are garden
2: clubs and uh, it requires going to a, a monthly meeting, hearing the guest speaker perhaps uh, sharing in a garden show uh, and you're suggesting that there are lots of alternatives out there. Uh, in terms of... Getting information, though, could it be that the new generation uh, have found a different way of exploring and accessing their information?
3: Well, they certainly do. They they get on um, their computers and go to websites like Green Thumbs Adelaide and find a whole community of people who are engaged in gardening of all ages. Um, But that's not the same.
2: No, that's right. We'll be talking about uh, uh, a new concept uh, of sharing vegetables, fruit and vegetables in next week's program, but uh, coming back to the situation now. So, um, should the garden clubs change and sort of still having evening meetings, they have day meetings, or even better, should they be taking uh, the information out to where the people are? So, I mean, the Orchid people, uh, they have their shows out amongst where the shopping centres. Is there a need for a change in concepts?
3: I think that's one of the ways to go, you have to go where the people are because they're not going to come to you on Friday night at 7 o'clock in some old church hall. Tre-
1: Trevor, you're sounding a bit muffled at the moment, if I, if you don't mind me oh, interrupting. If you can just hold your phone a little bit differently, yeah. perhaps um, it'll be a bit clearer.
3: How's that
1: now? That's great, Trevor. Thank you. Go Good. on.
3: Yeah, OK, um, so uh, Yeah yeah keep going, <laughs> yeah, I think well, there's lots of options about going to shopping malls or you could even go if you wanted to a big nursery and say, Can we have your part of your big shed to put up a display and maybe present some talks or um, yeah powerPoint things um it's a matter of doing it. And a lot of the older people who have done that stuff have got it in their heads that we have a show, we do all this, and here's the book of rules and here's the book of entries and, and Doris will do the money and Jack will do the front door and Bill will do the plant display. And getting them out of that thinking habit is quite challenging.
2: Yeah. Okay. So maybe uh, again a change in in mindset. The fact that uh, uh, people are interested in gardening, they want gardening information. Uh, perhaps uh, they need to uh, uh, share. And and if you take a look, community gardens have taken off, and you know, people yes. are joining community gardens. So yep. is there a need to sort of joining the concept of garden clubs with that of of community gardens?
3: I can't see why it wouldn't happen. The thing is, nobody's tried to tried it yet, and that's where things. That's why we've got this slump. There's got to be more creative thinking about how things can be done. I mean, how do you fit whatever your activity is around? a busy family with children, can you do something at the shopping mall on Saturday morning? Or can you do something elsewhere? It worries me, Trevor, that
2: uh, people are interested in gardening. They want gardening information. And... uh, if the garden clubs uh, perhaps have got to their use-by date and need rethinking, yet at the other side of it, you've got uh, uh, people wanting to get involved in community gardens, in growing things, in sharing things, and not just growing fruit and veg, it's uh, the environmental type of things together. It, it's time for some new thinking, maybe.
3: Yeah, I think it is. it is. It's, I mean, everything has changed in the last... 50 years, (laughs) and it will keep on changing, and you you can't stick with what you know. You have to keep learning new stuff. So good garden clubs and active garden clubs have got people who volunteer with IT skills. I can set up a web page. I can run photographic display on the web. I know how to set up a rolling picture show Um, That sort of thing. Some do it, and some just think, oh, I can't be bothered...
2: Right, yeah. Well, listen, I think it's something we might poke at uh, from time to time on Talkback Gardening, and well, I, I appreciate your background on that. Listen, before you disappear, uh, normally we would be promoting the Bulb and lilyum show, and of course it's uh, one of the many victims of COVID at the moment, and uh, the members are sending brilliant photos, <laughs> images of uh, the lilyums they're growing, and you're one of them. Um, Lilliums, they are spectacular, and people think, oh, I'd love to grow one of those. How easy is it to grow a lilyum,
3: it's quite easy if, if you know what to do, and if you <laughs> learned the skills from somebody or seen a demonstration. But it's not—it's not hard. I grow—we grow a few in the garden, um, but most of the ones that I grow are in big tubs with with proper potting mix and all that stuff and regular feeding, the same as everybody would do anything. And um, they need good drainage. They must have that. And you need to control aphids in particular so that the leaves and the plants don't get virused. But they're not difficult and... Um, You can get the bulbs, you can buy them in flower. And, yeah, they're only, say, 30 centimetres high. But if you put them in a big tub in a big space with good soil and water, they might be 60 centimetres high next year with more flowers. And one of the ones I posted uh, of a pinkish lily, trumpet lily, is three metres tall. And it's, I mean,
2: who wouldn't want that? It's at the end of... So so we're looking at the role of lilians in the garden and rather than sort of putting them, growing them in the garden, and many people still do that, but uh, people have got different concepts or limited space. Uh, The concept of having a brilliant splash of colour by growing your lilians in a container, it would be one way to go.
3: Well, it's it's good and if if you're creative about it then you can put the big plastic tubs inside a really nice big pot and and make a display out of it, which looks great. Our garden looks great. Um, yes. finished. So yeah, it's not hard, it's just acquiring a few skills. I mean they're plants, <laughs> they need to be treated like plants are treated. They're not right cactus on. so they don't go out there. But, no, they're not hard.
2: All right. And as you are saying, uh, it's just a matter of finding the right information. And on the web, you'll find if you dial lilliums, growing lilliums, you'll be amazed at the amount of information that's available. Trevor, I love talking to you, and uh, we'll continue our discussion offline as well as uh, on Talkback Gardening. Yep. We'll catch up again.
3: Thanks, John.
1: Good on you, Trevor. Trevor Nottle there, uh, John Lamb's guest on Talkback Gardening this Saturday morning. John, we've got lots of calls that have uh, piled up since you've been speaking to Trevor, so we'll get back into those straight away. And topically, this one is about Lilliams. Leonie is on the line. Um, Good morning, Leonie. Have we got you, Leonie?
0: Uh, uh, around gardening.
1: Sorry, we we missed the first part of what you said, Lillian. We just had a a problem with pushing a button here. Could you just uh, repeat the question, please?
0: Uh, um, Yeah, I just wanted to... uh, uh, Yeah, I've I've got a question. I grew up around liliums and um, lots of gardening and that my mum and dad were very involved in the um, Gladiola Society and the Lilium Society... And in fact, my dad was actually tended the uh, Lilium <coughs> Society's club uh, block that they used to have up in the hills to grow their liliums. Um, and that's, as I uh, said, that I grew up around them. Um, and uh, something that I've uh, been hearing a lot um, in the last year or two. Is that you should never have lilies in your house um, or garden if you have a cat, because the uh, pollen is poisonous to cats. And I'm thinking, I never ever heard that <laughs> when I was younger, and um, like lilies were all around. And I was just wondering about the veracity of that.
2: Uh, yes, well, particular types of liliums, uh and they produce lots of pollen and some people don't like lilliums because they drop their pollen and <laughs> it can make a bit of a mess. Others don't like the smell of them and it reminds them of funerals, uh, whereas there are just so many brilliant... Coloured flowers and pleasantly, uh, uh, a pleasant aroma from them. Uh, but in terms of your particular area, yeah, there are particular types. The pollen uh, can certainly be uh, uh, very, very damaging or dangerous to cats. And so uh, that's why it's important that when you're growing things, you just uh, make sure you're aware of uh, and you ask questions, you know, how safe are these particular plants? There are many that have got not just the pollen, it's often the sap of plants that can be uh, a, an to many people. But uh, yeah, so that's a good point to raise there, I think, Leone.
1: Good on you, Leonie. You like, think, oh, sorry, John, didn't yeah, mean I, did. I was
2: just going to say, like Leonie, um I can remember my dad always had lilies in the garden. And uh, yeah, there we are. It's uh, an era uh, that's come and that's gone. And the Gladioli Society, when I first started Talkback Gardening, uh, Riley Filmer mm. used to be a Brilliant uh, advocate for Gladiolos. He was president of the Gladiola Society for many many years and did so much to promote uh, the bulb type flower plants. But uh, yeah, yeah uh, Gladiola Society, of course, yeah, went by the way you know some years ago.
1: Well, I think things do come and go, don't John, and for various reasons. But look, a- actually, there's a text here which I might just mention before uh, we give a quick time call here. But maybe this sheds some insight into what's going on with gardening clubs the text says to be interested in gardening and gardening clubs you usually need to have a garden of your own but unfortunately the trend of dividing old standard quarter acre blocks in half and filling the land with buildings has resulted in gardens disappearing in alarming numbers says Clark at West Beach and Clark I couldn't agree with you more this uh, uh, urban renewal as they call it is basically garden Armageddon really (laughs) isn't it John?
2: Yeah, and, and that that's happening, and of course it comes back to the point that, that Trevor was making, is that people want to be involved with gardening, and they don't have space for a garden, and that's why you're getting tremendous interest in community gardens, and as I mentioned we'll be talking about this in in a, uh, one of the aspects of it in, in next week's program, but there it is there's the need on one side, and there is uh, uh, people sort of moving into the community gardens, and it's getting those two together, and how do you do that, uh, is, is the issue, and if you've got your point of view and like to share it, uh, send a text in uh, next week. Deb will be on the program and uh, she can gather some of that information and feed it back to me. And uh, away we go.
1: Now, we're going to get back into the calls with gusto in a moment. It is Talk Back Gardening, after all. It's-
0: Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Lee Radford on ABC Radio Adelaide.
1: Wonderful to have your company this Saturday morning. Let's go back to the calls now, John Lamb, and head up into the Adelaide Hills for the first one. Cheryl is on the line from Nan. Good morning, Cheryl. Good morning. What would you like to ask John about, Cheryl?
0: Um, my question is about a passion tree um, and about uh, when we should um, trim it back. It, it's a. Um, it's about in its third year, so this is, will be its first
4: full crop of passion fruit.
2: Righto. Well, passion fruit usually are fairly vigorous in their growth. Is yours putting on lots of new t- tendrils?
0: Yeah, it sure is. Yep. No, it's right. doing really well.
2: All right. Well, got... we will be talking about the importance of summer pruning to reduce the vigour of plants. and. Uh, Many people have got passion fruit and they're putting on tr- uh, triffid-like growth and now is a good time to get out with the hedge clippers and take, uh, uh, trim back those leaders, all that, that triffid-like growth, taking the tips yeah. out and often coming back about two or three uh, sets of leaves. You'll find that that will reduce the vigour and it will mm. also slow the plant down and increase its potential for producing flowers and holding onto the fruit.
0: Right, yep. No, because it certainly, at the moment, it's got plenty of fruit on it. uh, So I'm really happy how it's going.
2: All right, okay. Well, I I think. uh... Yeah, and with passion fruit, because you know, they're all the time growing, uh, rather than sort of saying, right, I'm going to prune it uh, at a particular time of the year, uh, maybe every sort of six weeks you take a look at it and say, right, oh, well, I'll just cut the longest and strongest uh, laterals and I'll cut those back and take the tips out and two or three sets of leaves and that just encourages it to produce more shorter branches and you'll get your flowers on the new growth so if you've got lots of little short stems uh, you're going to have the potential for a lot more flowers and fruit.
0: Yep okay that's great thanks John for that.
1: Thanks for your call Cheryl let's go to Somerton Park now John Jim is on the line good morning to you Jim.
4: Good morning when should I start looking for citrus galls?
2: Well, any time from about now on. Um, it uh, They would have... Uh, the, the wasps came out in that uh, October, early November period. They would have laid their eggs and the adults would be well and truly dead by now. And any of the uh, branches that have been uh, infested with uh, the eggs, uh, they would have... Uh, uh, th- come out and uh, they would be forming little galls right now. You'll probably find, uh, if you've had a heavy infestation in the past, you'll probably start to see new galls. But if you've been good in getting rid of them, you might find that you've only got a light infestation and finding the galls early in the season is very, very difficult. But if you get there and look, look at uh, the, the junction between a new growth and, a, and a previous year's growth, often you'll find that that's where you'll see the first sign of uh, the galls forming. Does that help? Okay. Yes, so any time from now on. Yes, yes. Um, And you've got to decide if you're going to prune, if you're going to prune them out, you need to do it very early uh, or sort of before the end of summer. Um, And I'm not an advocate of pruning late in summer or in autumn because that encourages the trees to produce a lot of new soft growth. And that soft growth is absolutely delicious to citrus gall wasps when they arrive in springtime. So the whole idea is not to have lots of new soft growth on your citrus trees in late winter, early spring.
1: Hope that helps, Jim. Thank you very much for your call to talk Talkback Gardening this Saturday morning. Let's go to Ros at Netherby now, John Lamb. Good morning, Ros. Good morning. And what's your question for John this morning, please?
4: Um, I have a row of capital ornamental pears um, and one of them's died, and I'd like to plant a new one. Can I do it now in summer, please?
2: All things are possible, Ros. It depends on how <laughs> good a gardener you are. Um, oh, no, okay. So- you can buy one that's growing in a plant, and it's no different to sort of getting any kind of a plant and putting it in the garden. At this time of the year, you suffer, or you, there's the potential of heat stress. And uh, so as we were talking about seedlings before, uh, taking on board that information of uh, waiting until you've got probably at least a week or so of mild weather or relatively mild weather is the first thing to do. Uh, Soak the plants in seaweed materials, uh, using your uh, uh, protective things such as stress guard and uh, certainly shading the plants if the temperatures are going to get over about 32 degrees will get you through. On the other hand, uh, if there is no need to hurry, uh, you'll find that you're less likely to run into problems if you wait until winter and plant then when the plants are dormant. Oh,
4: okay. Um, Because I will be buying a a tree, I mean, a plant that's already like a metre tall or a metre and a half tall, so it's quite an established plant in a pot from a nursery. Does it still need all that attention?
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. more so. The bigger the plant, the more uh, likelihood it's going to be stressed because you've got a, a big plant, two metres of foliage and canopy, uh, stuck in a tiny little pot, which means that the root system is probably only about half the size of, of what it should be. So you've got to be even more careful uh, when you actually transfer. But you'll find that, um, I mean, next door to me, the, the, the she's planted uh, uh, capital pears there. And uh, ran into awful troubles because of stress because the plants weren't being watered correctly. And once you got the watering right, they took off. So if you get it right, get your management right, uh, they can um, be established now and and they can take off and hardly miss a beat. So it's all depends on you and your management, there, Ross.
1: Good on you, Ross. Thank you for your call. Let's head over to Athelston now. John Robs on the line. Good morning, Rob.
3: Oh, g'day, mate. I'm at Caracalinga today. Oh, um, yeah, I thought it was... <laughs> that's what it <laughs> said go. on my screen. <laughs>
1: okay. That doesn't matter. How's it down at Caracalinga?
3: Well, it's a beautiful day. as you know, beautiful oh, one it's... day, lovely the next, or whatever you say. <laughs> yeah.
1: What's your question for John?
3: <laughs> okay, John gave me advice on cutting back my rosemary, and I cut it back hard. It's, it's turned up magnificent, but I've got a got our pomegranate down here that I've left alone for years, and I want to know, should I cut that back to get some growth out of it?
2: Uh, yes, you can do that. Um, I wouldn't be doing it in the middle of summer, um, unless you really had to. Um, so presumably you'll pay it a visit later on in the season, in autumn yep. sometime. Well, I'd wait okay. until early early autumn would be a good time. And uh, do you want to just reduce its size or increase its no, looks?
3: What? I want to encourage its growth.
2: <laughs> right uh, now would be a time, a to uh, put on some uh, nutrition. Probably yep. chicken manure type pellets, a good quality one of those that uh, have been uh, uh, molded together, put together for roses. That would be ideal. Give it a, an application yep. of that, and then mulch it. Um, it would help, I think, if you had a basin around it. You've probably got sandy soil down there, so putting a yep. basin so when you do water, uh, the water stays and goes into where the roots are, rather than runs away and gets wasted. So uh, uh,
3: get I've the got water. I've irrigation mulch. pipe, John. Yeah. When well, I planted what, what, it, I put irrigation pipe down in the ground so it got the water okay. goes down into the ground.
2: Righto. So, okay, well, if you're watering it um, and it's not mm-hmm. growing, it, it, it presumably uh, lack of water is not the issue. It's probably your sandy soil and probably, mm-hmm. um, well, it could be your watering system. And check to see that you've got enough uh, distribution of moisture where you want the root system. So, you know, are you using drippers or sprayers? No, I've got a pipe that goes down into the ground, um, an irrigation soaks. pipe, you know. Yeah, so oh,
4: right yeah.
2: yeah. Subsurface irrigation. Yeah. Okay. Well, if it's, if that's installed correctly, it's brilliant. But too often it's not, and you'll find that if you're not put, leaving the system on long enough, you're only getting a short little layer of moisture, and that's where the roost form. And it's up near mm-hmm. the surface you'll find uh, in sandy soil, you'll find that that'll dry out faster than uh, it is required to keep the plant growing. So uh, you might have to water longer or more often. So mm-hmm. get down on hands and knee with a trowel and f- follow the water after, say, an hour or so after it's had a, a watering, mm-hmm. then see where the water's gone. And uh, okay. what you need to make sure is the moisture has gone down at least 20 centimetres, probably ideally 30 centimetres, and is uh, probably coming out at least uh, a, a metre either side of the trunk of that plant.
3: Okay.
1: Good. Good on okay. you, Rob. And give,
3: give it a bit of a... OK, thanks Thanks very much.
1: No, I appreciate your call, Job, uh, Rob, and I uh, hope you have a wonderful weekend down at Caracalinga. What a wonderful place to be. Let's move on, John. Now back to Metropolitan Adelaide, Glenelg North. Helen is on the line, and I think it's a question about uh, pruning again. Hello, Helen.
4: Good morning, boys. Uh, John, I have... Um, had the juniors in the cart uh, pot for nearly three months. They've been
0: magnificent. Now they've gone all sort of leggy and brown. Will I cut them back or because they usually uh, let, go through
2: to March with their flowering? Yes, you'll find that they'll button off and that's because they're a little bit stressed we'll come back to that in a yes. second but uh, yes. petunias are one of those things they do, uh, particularly the older fashion varieties, they just have uh, long strong stems and uh, yes. if you take the tims out take the tips out or cut them back by say a third, you'll find so, that yes. it'll send out lots of little side branches the newer petunias, mm-hmm. you pay a bit more for them, but they are what they call self-branching and you don't need to uh, give them that prune in the middle of summer although sometimes that helps, um, but uh, your petunias, petunias, in their container, and are they in full sun? Oh, yes,
4: yeah, full sun container. The ones that are in the ground, they're still
0: magnificent,
2: like beautiful. Uh, lovely. They're, I'm glad you said top. that. But <laughs> have you been yes. listening to the program where Lee and I, and I've been trying to get Lee to go and buy himself a soil
1: thermometer? <laughs> It's on my list, John. I haven't done it yet, but I promise yeah, I will. Yeah, that's right. One of
2: these days. And, gunner, gunner. Uh, Helen, I'd suggest you go and buy us a more th- soil thermometer. And next you time when care? the temperature... Go, go ahead.
0: I've got uh, the thing where I put it in, and, it, yeah, it tells you whether it needs more water. and things uh-huh, so- No, that's not what I'm yeah.
2: talking about. No, no, no. I'm talking about a good old soil thermometer that will measure the temperature. And what is happening, I believe, is that uh, the sun is shining onto your pot and the top soil, the top two or three centimetres, if you put your soil thermometer in there and when the temperature is up around about 35 degrees, I wouldn't be surprised if the thermometer reads 40 degrees or even 50 degrees. And what happens is that you're watering and you're fertilising and you're wondering why the plant is not growing and it buttons off. It's because the topsoil, where most of the roots, the active uh, roots on a petunia are up in that top two or three centimetres, and there's no roots there because they've been cooked. So you need to uh, either uh, double pot, so you have your pot where you're growing them in and put that inside a a bigger pot and and, uh, and put some soil between the two layers so that you've got a cooler pot to grow your petunias in or else you you also need to mulch the the top two or three centimetres and you might consider having some kind of temporary shade over your plants when the temperature gets over about 35 degrees.
1: So there you go. And Helen. if you do
2: that, if you do that, okay, you say, oh, too much trouble. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm just discovering talking to people with uh, plants growing in containers, particularly sunny containers, and they're complaining that during summer they fertilize and water and the plants are not growing. And <laughs> the answer is because the topsoil is cooking the roots.
1: It makes perfect sense, it. doesn't it, John? It makes perfect sense, and I am going to buy that thermometer. <laughs> I promise. I just haven't got around to it yet. Yeah, <laughs> Helen, yeah, that's right. Helen, go hope on. that helps. Um, we'll keep. We'll take another call uh, now, John. Uh, let's go back to country South Australia, up to Wakery in the Riverland. Nancy's on the line. Good morning, Nancy. What's it like at Wakery this morning?
4: Ah, uh, perfectly beautiful.
1: Always, always. What's your question?
4: Uh, we had a passion fruit we planted about five years ago. It went really, really well. Heaps of fruit doing fantastic. Then we had a huge frost and lost it completely. And then I started shooting and thinking that was okay, but it went to the rootstock and that's gone crazy. Around everything, it's hard to get rid of. What can we do?
2: Right. Well, you just need to have a campaign of uh, uh, spraying with glyphosate. You'll find but while the plant is sending out soft new growth, glyphosate is very, very effective. And the value of glyphosate, as distinct from those that give you just a rapid knockdown, it doesn't just knock it down, the chemical gets absorbed and down into the root system and stops the next lot of suckers from growing. So, um, spray on a nice, calm day like today, presumably, um, and uh, get the glyphosate. Working and, and reducing the root system, that'll probably knock off 60, 70, 80%. And be prepared, probably in six or eight weeks' time, more growth will come. So repeat a couple of times during the growing season and maybe even just keep an eye on it next springtime when you might get the last of the suckers trying to come through.
1: Thanks for your call from Wakery this morning, Nancy. In a moment, John Lamb, we're going to talk about beating the birds.
0: Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Lee Radford
1: on ABC Radio Adelaide. And we're loving receiving your calls this morning. 1-300-222-891 is the telephone number. one 300 891 John, you mentioned it right at the start, but we're heading into the zone now where all of that lovely produce is starting to come online, so to speak, in people's backyards. But that means it also becomes very attractive to other things like birds, doesn't it?
2: Sadly, yes. And the question is who eats the fruit, you or the birds? Um, So it's possible to protect your plants, but you just need to be smart. And being smart helps if you understand the psychology of a bird. Um, When a bird early in the harvesting season, there's a mob of birds. And what they do is they send out a scout, and that scout uh, goes and tests the fruit in different gardens. And at some stage, that scout will say, right, that fruit is ready to eat. And it's probably two days before you reckon it's ready to eat. But invariably, they'll declare that fruit fair game. And once the scout has sort of said it's okay, in come the mob. And once the mob have started, you won't be able to stop your stop birds from the strategy of repulsion. And people will read about, and you go onto the web and it'll tell you, look, all you need is things that glitter. Uh, you can have snakes stuck in the tree and all kind of things that repel the birds. And some people say, oh, it worked for me. And others say, no, it doesn't work at all. And it will work. It's got a potential for working but you've got to put those things up and into the tree before the scout declares the fruit in your garden good. Once uh, the birds have started, uh, they've got the habit and they won't break the habit and you've lost your crop, I reckon, for that season. So you've got to get in early if you want to use repulsion. The other area that uh, does work is protection, netting. Netting is very, very effective, and it's important. If you're getting netting, you buy uh, netting that has been approved Uh, it's it's got the seal of approval that it doesn't uh, cause harm in the garden in terms of trapping small birds and things like that. So getting the right kind of bird netting is correct. Installing it is very, very important. It's difficult sometimes. And putting a little uh, um, frame over the tree is important. And just as important, once the harvest is over, is taking the netting down. Now, netting a big tree is not easy and if you only just want some of the fruit and you're happy to share some of the fruit with the birds, you can now buy little bags, little uh, protection bags in a a little uh, uh, box and and, and there'll be 10 of these little bags and you put sort of trying to cover the whole tree, you're covering individual bunches or you can also get little sleeves where there's uh, just a a little uh, uh, nylon bag, it's it's like a, you know, a sausage bag and you mm-hmm. put that over the, the branch and at least you get a branch of fruit and you know, all you need is two or three branches over your nectarine tree or whatever it might be and at least uh, that's protected. And those little bags are beautiful because uh, they're made of mesh and it's very, very good in keeping out the coddled moth and fruit fries and things like that. And uh, It worries me. The garden centres have been pretty lax in, in installing and a- accessing that product so go online and next time you get it online and then next time you go to your garden centre and say hey listen I didn't get it from you because it didn't stock it I now buy it online and the garden centres need to wash it watch it otherwise they're going to lose a lot of customers to online by not looking after their
1: gardening needs. And it is an interesting approach John just netting some individual branches because I, I know quite a few people who actually say look I'm very happy to share some of the fruit uh, that we produce in the backyard with the birds just so long as we get a bit of it. So that's one way of doing it. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about, John, is rats because I have seen rats stripping uh, trees at the rate of knots as well. How do you deal with rats? Oh, that's a
2: session in itself. Lee. Oh, I've ripened
1: um, up a can of worms. <laughs> you have. In fact,
2: would you believe, next week in the Good Gardening newsletter, the topic is, is it rats, birds or possums? And it is possible by looking at the tree and looking at where the damage is, you can tell whether it's a bird, a possum or a rat, and we'll include that in next week's uh, Good Gardening newsletter with just a, a brief summary of, of your best strategies for overcoming either a bird, a possum or a rat, <laughs> but each one requires probably more than I think we've got time for at the moment. Well, i look uh, forward
1: to the newsletter hitting my inbox oh, next week, John, and I'll, I'll read all about it then, so to speak.
2: <laughs> Alright. Just very, very briefly, with rats, hygiene. Hygiene is probably the key. Uh, they need food and uh, if you've got... In- your garden areas where they are breeding uh, you've got problems so making sure there's no areas where they little hide and and make nests and uh, breed uh, that will reduce your problem considerably and then there are strategies and chemicals and things like that which you've got to use but with care
1: you're listening to talk back gardening with john lamb and lee radford it's 13 to 10 john let's go back to the phones and in fact up to balaclava in the mid-north mike is on the line good morning mike
3: yeah, good day, and John.
1: What would you like uh, to ask?
3: Yeah, uh, I've got a problem with my um plum tree, John. I had a we had a very heavy crop on it last year of, of nice plums and anyway I've got a guy come in and pruned it and I think he, he pruned it at the wrong time of year and he he gave it a very, very heavy prune and now we've got these skinny little branches trying to reach for the sky. And I just want to get it back to back to normal if I can, please. Yeah, right.
2: Well, I think sometimes you need to uh, take on board that if you have a heavy crop one year, you're going to get a light crop next year, and uh, it's called biannual bearing. And so don't blame the pruner completely um, in terms of uh, 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 its potential for fruit next year. And what happens in a heavy year, the plant uses so much energy, not only to uh, produce and fill up the fruits with uh, moisture and and goodies. Um, It also, in producing this year's crop, takes out a lot of energy for next year's crop. And while it's producing its fruit this year, next year's buds are being formed and being set for uh, the following year's harvest. And so if you've got a heavy crop one year, uh, it just takes so much out of the tree. It it can't produce a good crop every year. And the thing then is uh, to remember on your heavy year, very early in the season before the fruit starts to size, is to thin the crop and also uh, pruning Uh, at that stage is also one other way of of, uh, making sure you just reduce the number of fruiting buds. So what to do in your situation if if it's thin? I would suggest that if it's a light year this year, it's got new growth on it, and I would encourage it to produce as much new growth, so keeping it well watered, well mulched. And this winter try and get to the stage where you can identify the difference between a fruit bud and a leaf bud. And if there are large quantities of fruit buds, and you'll find that they're big, fat ones compared with little skinny leaf buds, if there are lots of fruit buds, you need to prune quite hard in winter to reduce the potential of fruit buds forming fruits. So if you've got lots of fruit buds, uh, thin them out. And uh, if you don't have lots of fruit buds, well, you're not going to (laughs) have another big crop next year, but at least uh, the tree is coming back into good health. So the important thing is on a heavy year, make sure you're watering plenty uh, regularly, and also you're putting on fertilizer in springtime And also uh, probably uh, once the fruit has been harvested, putting on an application then, that's the critical time when all fruit trees, all deciduous fruit trees should be fertilized as soon as possible after harvest because that's where the energy is being stored for the following season. So a bit of a lecture there, but I don't know whether that
1: helps. I'm sure it will, John. Thank you for your call from Balaclava, Mike. Uh, It's uh, ten to ten, John. I don't know where the time goes. It just disappears when we start talking about gardening. It's uh, such engaging stuff. Now we've got uh, at least three calls that I want to try and get through in the next minute, uh, ten minutes, John. So let's have a crack at doing just (laughs) that. Short. I'll do that. (laughs) Margaret is on the line from Brighton North. Hello, Margaret. Good morning,
4: Lee, and good morning, John. Uh, Love your program, um, but I have a big red hanging pot curanium, or two, in terracotta pots, but I've got them on the deck, on the ground level, and they are magnificent. But in the last month, I think they've been under attack from these numerous tiny little worms, which are obviously so well nourished as they grow fast into caterpillar size green and I believe something is laying um, multitudes of eggs constantly and I'm wondering if you can recommend a spray to eradicate this infestation please.
2: Yes, it's been one of those seasons where, because of the relatively mild conditions in spring, there's been a massive build-up of all kind of different caterpillars. And there mm. is the one on geraniums where they are. When they're small, they take all the uh, uh, green out of the leaves, and then mm. they get bigger and and uh, they grow into bigger caterpillars and munch up the whole leaf. <clears throat> okay, it's a big problem. You're not the only one with that problem, Mark, but it, it's sure. very easily very easily controlled. Get yourself some some success.
3: Success.
2: Success. Success, Yeah, it's made by uh, uh, produced by Yates and probably um, success ultra. ULTA, Success Ultra. Uh, okay. It's very specific in its action. It doesn't kill the insects. It stops them from feeding, and it, it works very, very, very quickly. Uh, it's extremely, extremely low toxicity uh, onto most things, and it'll just clean up those caterpillars, and anybody's got a caterpillar problem, uh, spray with success. Um, oh, and, uh, thank you. At the moment le- I'm using tweezers and going out there daily finding them. <laughs> uh, no, no, is- no. The, the, the nice thing about that chemical, it's translaminar, which means that when you spray it, you spray it on the top of the leaf, it goes into the bottom part of the leaf anyway. So uh, it's just a very, very effective chemical and it'll persist probably for a couple of weeks, whereas some of the quick acting sprays, uh, they'll work today, but if the caterpillar's come tomorrow, the chemical's gone and you have to spray again.
4: Okay. Oh well thank you so much for that at Rice. I'll be out there today buying that
1: product. Good on you, Margaret. Thank you for your call from Brighton North. John, the most extraordinary text has come through. I can't believe this. I've got to mention it just very quickly. I lived I've lived in South Australia for twenty years and I've never ever seen a possum anywhere. Feral cats, yes, foxes, yes, wild dogs, yes, deer, yes, kangaroos, yes. Possums never. Well, dear texter, I can tell you I've got any number at my place if you'd like to come and not just see them but uh, offer them a new home if you'd like. Let's keep and going would, with the calls, John. And Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, John. Were you oh, going to no, say something? Just,
2: I, I'd reflect and say I bet there's no trees. Uh, probably whoever is responsible has cleared off all the trees, which is the habitat for the possums, and so one more reason why uh,
1: we need trees. Absolutely. But, uh, We've, I've certainly lots of possums at my place. Let's go to Hackham now. Lynn is uh, on the phone. Hello, Lynn.
4: Hello. Hello. Yes, I, I love your program. Um, I uh, help in a community garden, and uh, we have a lovely patch of very healthy uh, strawberries, but um, they're producing heaps and heaps of runners and empty flowers. They have flower heads, but they're empty, and uh, I don't know what to do. I'll
2: <laughs> well, probably buy yourself some sulphate of potash. Sulphate of potash sounds like your plant is nearly there. Um, so uh, we come back. First of all, you said there are lots of runners there. Um, a plant needs energy to produce its fruit, and it also needs energy to produce runners and it finds uh, sometimes difficult to do both at the same time. So off with the head with the runners, unless you want to uh, uh, propagate them. The runners can actually be uh, chopped off and put into little containers, and you can have more strawberry plants. But um, it's much better to get rid of your runners now and that means all the energy that's being produced by the root system goes into the potential fruit. And uh, you're getting to a stage where obviously there's plenty of health there and maybe too much vigor and you want a little bit less of the growth hormone and some of the fruit hormone. And because you've got the potential there, potash doesn't make flowers, but it helps uh, for flowers to turn into fruit and uh, I think if you get some sulphate or potash, you can buy it in a liquid form or a powdered form, follow the directions, and an application, I think, of that followed up uh, probably in uh, two or three weeks' time uh, with a second application should overcome that particular problem.
1: Thank you, Lynn. Four minutes to ten, we might just take one more quick one, I reckon. John Joy is on the line from Largs. Good morning, Joy.
4: Good morning, Lee Good morning, John. I've got a Bougainvillea that is about uh, six feet high, but it's got behind some trees now, and I wanted to move it. Uh, is it easy to move a Bougainvillea, and how back to how low can I cut it, please? They're
2: tough, indestructible, but yes. they don't like being moved in the middle of summer um, oh, they are okay. heat, they are heat heat loving. Yeah. and they need all the leaves they've got to transpire and keep themselves cool and uh-huh. keep on growing. So right. if you move them now, you'll reduce uh, the root system, cause major problems. mightn't kill it, but it'll set it back no end. So if you can, uh, wait until early autumn. Uh, ideally, even better would be to wait until winter. when it's. Uh, is, is it a uh, deciduous one, or is it a semi-evergreen?
4: Semi-evergreen is a pretty one, pink and white. But it's on a, it's on a yeah. wire trellis, so I have to cut it. I cut it a lot of it back because it's entwined in the trellis, so I have to cut it to move it.
2: Yes, right. Well, I mean, you could cut it back now and uh, uh, just set it up so that uh, you're reducing the lo- the long, strong canes, which are a long distance from uh, uh, the, the trunk. Uh, yes. Just reduce the, the canopy so that it's producing, right. it'll reproduce more branches, but they'll be closer to the, the main trunk. And that way the plant will be in a much better condition to move them in autumn. But Does I certainly would brood? not... Uh, Sorry. It has a reasonable size root, your system, and it has a lot of strong roots to start off with, and then it doesn't produce lots of masses of little hair roots, and that's why sometimes it's pretty susceptible to being moved in the middle of summer, uh, so I'd suggest you, know, you could do it, uh, it'll probably set it back. And if it was mine, I'd do everything I could to wait until uh, we get cooler conditions. And that uh, March period probably would be absolutely ideal. Yes, that's a good patient, I think,
1: Joy. Uh, John, we've only got about a minute and a half left to go. Um, So tips for this weekend? What would you like to say before we pull up stumps this Saturday morning? Well,
2: I did mention that it's fruit harvest time. And it's very important that uh, you pick up the windfalls. We've just come through a horror season, a period for fruit fly, and once the fruit's on the ground, it gets an odour, and that attracts the fruit flies by like nobody's business. So we don't want to encourage the fruit flies. Pick up your windfalls. Uh, the other thing is there's a little insect, a little cat, a thing called a carpophilus beetle. It loves windfall fruits. And what happens is it gets into the fruit when it gets mouldy, then it flies flies into the fruit that's maturing and it's got dirty little fungal spores on its feet and it spreads it over your nectarines and peaches and things like that. And uh, if, you don't want, uh, if you're not careful, uh, you'll find that they'll get uh, full of rotten materials. So picking up windfalls and hygiene is tremendously important.
1: John, always so informative. Thanks so much for another compelling talk about gardening. Deb Tribe will be back with you this week, but uh, it's been great. Thank you so much.
2: Yes, look forward to your little annual sojourn out of the hills and until next week, Lee, I'll say good gardening.